The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Let's ask for God's help as we uh, look at his word, listen to his word together. Father, thank you so much that you speak to us. You've spoken in so many ways, so many ways. You speak through creation. We see your strength and your power. Um, You speak through your prophets, Lord, this book, your word. You've spoken best of all through your son, the the very person of your son who came to save us. And you, you speak to us now. You speak to us right here. Your Holy Spirit is here. You speak to us. You speak to us as we study your word together. And so we just ask you together... Let everyone pray in their heart right now. God, speak to me. Show me what you have to say. And uh, we're listening, Lord. Speak. Here we are. And so we we trust you for this, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what would a life of faith in Jesus look like? What's a good analogy? And that's a broad question. You could probably think of a lot of answers. But sometimes I wonder if some people think a life of faith in Jesus looks like patriotism. You know, patriotism, right? What do you do at the game? You sing the national anthem. What do you do at church? You sing a couple songs, right? Fourth of July, Christmas and Easter, right? If someone's anti-American, you got to get a little mad. Sometimes anti-God, you got to get a little mad. Is that a good picture of a life of faith in Jesus? No. Or maybe it's like family tradition. We come together. Maybe uh, once a month or maybe at the holidays. And you remember what we used to do. Everybody has something, right? And you do it again. And why do you do it? We don't know. But we do it again. Is that what a, a, a life of faith in Jesus looks like? Let's get together with people we have some commonality with and do the same things again. Why? Don't ask that question. It's uncomfortable. Is that what a life of faith in Jesus looks like? In our text today, there's an amazing, amazing sentence. Chapter 11, verse 1. So I'm really going to ask you to follow along with me. That's on page 958. Chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says to the church, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You know, how can you know what a life of faith in Jesus is supposed to look like? Well, wouldn't this be one answer? You want to see what it looks like? Paul says, look at me. Look at Jesus. Look at me as I'm looking at Jesus. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's how we might know. Now think with me what Jesus said about the way he lived his life. What might you see in Jesus' lifestyle? In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus says this. Real simple, so profound. I do as the Father has commanded me. So let's just ingest this. What does he do? As the Father has commanded him. Why? If we were having having a little Bible study and you were like, okay, Jesus says he does as the Father commands him. And then he tells you why. What do you think he would say? Why does he do it, the Father? So I won't get a spanking, so um, 
so I can save you all, so I can... What would he say? This is what he says in John 14, 31. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. What does he want the world to know? He loves his Father. So he always does what the Father commands. Why? Because he loves his Father so much. It's not something he wants to keep private. He wants the world to see that, the world lo- that, that he loves his Father. Isn't that a different way of looking at life? I am so in love with God, my Father, Jesus says, and I live in a way so everybody will see that. Does he sound ashamed of his love for the Father? Shy, insecure? No. That kind of a life looks like passionate faithfulness. Passionate faithfulness. Then in our text today, down in chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says this. He says he's been showing us his example in chapter 9. And in chapter 10, verse 31, he says, Okay, so whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So always do this one thing in how you do anything. Right? There's something we're always doing no matter what we're doing. Something we always want, no matter what we're engaged in. It should be there in every single thing, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do. And what is the one thing? Do it all, Paul says, for the glory of God. That sounds like Jesus to me. The glory of God is his essence, his beauty, his majesty. Now you're, when you do things for the glory of God, are you trying to add to his glory? God, you're like, this. I'm going to build up your glory. I'm going to make you more glorious. No, that's ridiculous. But when you do all things for its glory, glory has, um, I believe it was Jackie who gave us the best definition of glory. Glory is the wow of God. His beauty, the, the things that you say, oh, he's so amazing. And you see it, and you want to be like him. And then just like when you see anything that you love, I mean, this is what we do as people, right? You, you hear a new song that you love, the next thing you do is you tell your friend. A grandchild is born. The next thing you do is you, is you post pictures on Facebook. When you see something beautiful, you share it. You want it to be seen and appreciated by others. That's what we do. And so for us to see the glory of God, we now want to do everything so that others can see him. Jesus, I, everything, I, I always obey the Father. I obey the Father so the world can see I love him. Paul, do everything, no matter what you do. Do it all for the glory of God. You know, maybe it sounded silly, but the, the Christian life isn't like patriotism or family tradition or a lot of other metaphors you might come up with. The Christian life is at least passionate faithfulness. Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And, Paul, and Christ says, I do everything so that the world can see the Father, that I love the Father. And Paul says, this is the way we want to live. Do it all, whatever you do, for the glory of God. A life of faith in Christ is a life of passionate faithfulness. Right? What's passionate mean? Showing strong feelings, strong belief. So it's not casual. Faithfulness, it's loyalty, it's constancy, it's steadfastness. It's not occasional. A life of faith in Jesus Christ should have this ingredient of passionate faithfulness. But this is difficult, isn't it? It's difficult. 
to be consistent in that. We've got, I don't know about you, I have rebellious inclinations in my own heart and in my own mind that push me away from that. We have doubts that compromise our convictions. We're not ready for something like passionate faithfulness. That's the way we feel so many times. And not only that, and this is the idea of our text today, we live in a world saturated with idolatry. And you're like, what? You just threw the idolatry concept at me? Yeah, nearly every influence in the world around us is going to, is going to try to entice us away from passionate faithfulness to Jesus. Can you feel that? It's going to move you away. It wants to distract you. It wants to get your allegiances somewhere else. Now, maybe you're thinking, really? Idols, statues, gods? That's not an issue for me. Anybody feeling that way? Don't raise your hand. Um, but what if we saw a little differently? Listen to this line Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. Okay, what's that? And then part of what he says is covetousness, which is idolatry. What? Covetousness, which is, what's covetousness? Idolatry. You don't need a silver statue to worship an idol. What's covetousness? Covetousness is an inordinate or inappropriately large or excessive desire for something, right? It's usually something that's somewhat good. The problem is you take something that's good and you make it into an ultimate. I must, I have to have this. Coveting. And that's idolatry. You know, last Wednesday it came out that one of science's convictions about human origins has been called into question. What? Yeah. Uh, The Guardian had this article and it was about Professor Reiner Proch von Zieten. Okay? And you may not know this, but he's world famous. For his work on ancient humanity, okay, he had supposedly discovered the vital missing link between modern humans and Neanderthals with a skull fragment found in a peat bog near Hamburg that was more than 36,000 years old. Wow. However, the professor's 30-year academic career has now ended in disgrace after the revelation that he systematically falsified the dates on this and numerous other quote-unquote Stone Age relics. Just last week. Last week, his university in Frankfurt announced that the professor had been been forced to retire because of numerous falsehoods and manipulations. For instance, that crucial Hamburg skull, which is from a Neanderthal known as the Hohnhofferson man, it's actually only 7,500 years old. Sad trombone, right? Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Another one of the professor's sensational finds, the Paderborn Sandman. Originally, this had been dated at 27,400 B.C. Oops. He only died a couple hundred years ago, 1750. <laughs> Oops. According to experts, this professor's deceptions may mean that an entire section of the history of man's development will have to be rewritten. Nearly everything on Neanderthals that has been taught and believed is bogus. Incredible. 
Thomas Turberger, the archaeologist who discovered the hoax, said this, anthropology is going to have to completely revise its picture of modern man between 40,000 and 10,000 years ago. But then the article asked this insightful question, why would von Zieten do such a thing as this? And Professor Turberger said, if you find a skull that's more than 30,000 years old, it's a sensation. Right? You've changed everything. You've blown up the field. If you find three of them, people know who you are. It's good for your career. But then Turberger says this, at the end of the day, it was about ambition. Ambition. Not science. Ambition. I don't know Mr. Proch's faith, the brilliant scientific hero, but he seems to be a very devoted servant to his God. What's his God? Fame. Recognition. And he obeyed his God faithfully by lying about the dates of his discoveries. He was a scientific hero, but now he's been revealed to be a what? An idolater. An idolater just like me. Hi, my name's Matt, and I am a recovering idolater. Anybody else like that in this room? Okay. An idol is anything you look to to be for you what only the real God is worthy of being. Only the real God is worthy to bestow upon you your ultimate identity. Why would you look to the scientific journal community to give you your identity? Only God can do that. Only God is worthy to be your ultimate authority. Why would you think it's okay to lie about your skull fragments? Well, if you're making it up for your own convenience. But only God is worthy to give you an ethical standard. Thou shalt not lie. Only God is worthy to be your ultimate security. You don't need to be praised by everyone. God is enough. Only God is worthy to be your ultimate satisfaction. And anything you look to to take his place is by definition a false god and therefore an idol. And we live in an idol-saturated world. It would be interesting, wouldn't it, to discuss together popular American idols? I don't mean the cute little singers, right? I mean um, entertainment. How much do we love entertainment in America? Wouldn't we die if we didn't have it, some of us? Don't take my football. Take a, take a pinky toe. Don't take football. Now, these can be good things. They just make lousy gods. How about autonomous desires? That is a god in this culture. If I feel it, that defines me, and that defines what's right for me. How do I know? I felt it. Can, can, can we question this? Uh, do your desires have that kind of power, authority, majesty, truth behind them? No. Anyway, here's the, here's the question for Christians. How do we live lives of passionate faithfulness in a world saturated by idolatry? Because this world and everything in it and your own sinful inclinations... Right? It's a magnetic pull away from passionate faithfulness, away from 
Everything I do, I do it for the glory of God. Away from, I always obey my Father because I want everybody to see I love him, right? You're pulled. You're tested. How do we do it? Well, this is not a new question or a new problem, obviously. This is a huge issue for the church in Corinth. In this letter, we've been studying through it, and Paul has given us three chapters on this in this letter. Their interactions together and in their culture, that is so idolatrous. The city of Corinth had idols of every kind, temples on every corner, and the worship of idols influenced the business world, the political world, even the meat you got in the market. And so one serious question developed for them, and it was this. Can Christians eat the meat, sacrifice, and in devotion and worship to an idol? So, so can you eat steak cut up in worship to Zeus? Hmm. Many thought, well, hey, Zeus isn't real. God made cows, praise be to the Lord. I can eat the meat, right? And there's, that's right in many cases. But they also started thinking, well, if it's not a problem to eat the meat, maybe it's not a problem to hit the festivals. And before you know it, those who claimed to worship Jesus in Corinth, they were participating in feasts built around the worship of an idol. And Paul has many strong words and strong thoughts about this. Today we're finishing this section. Um, if you want to see what's gone before, the sermons are on the website. But the question for the, in the text today and the question for us is this. When it comes to living in an idol-saturated world, how do we do it with passionate faithfulness? How do we do it? And the main theme is to run. Run. You saw it in verse 4. Beloved, what do we do with idolatry? You see it? Flee. Run. Run from idolatry. But he doesn't just say to run away. He also says run into. He's going to say run into love for your neighbor. Run away from idolatry. Run into love for your neighbor. And then a third one, run for. Run for. Run for the glory of God. So as you and I live in an idol-saturated culture, and I just challenge you to look at it, Think about it. Discern it. How do we do it with passionate faithfulness without turning into just something casual? Well, you got to run. Run from your own idolatry. Run into love for your neighbor. Run for the glory of God. Start with the first point. It's in 14. Therefore, and Paul's wrapping up what's gone before and moving ahead into what's coming next. But he says two things. Number one, therefore my what? Beloved, mm. isn't it great to know that you can be struggling with idolatry and still be beloved? What earned you that title, beloved? It's kind of an awkward one, right? Well, it's either churchified or awkward. Um, some pastors, I've heard them do it, when they talk to their congregation, they're like, beloved. And I'm always like, how would you feel if, I was, if, if that's the way I talked about you all? Hey, beloved, you might, that feels churchy. But if you really got to the heart of it, it would go past churchy into, what if it was real? Like, hey, the way I'm referring to you is you are people who are deeply loved. That's what identifies you. You are loved. I love you. We love one another. We are loved. How did, what a strange title, loved. How did you get that title? What is this all about? Well, you've been loved by God. So loved that he bought you with the blood of his son. And you're his. Beloved. How, do, how are you going to flee from your own idolatry? You've got to remember your 
Loved. Loved. You're loved. Here's, here's one thing I can promise you about any idol you've ever had. Your idol doesn't love you. It doesn't love you. It wants to ruin you. There's one who's loved you from the first when you never deserved it. He's loved you. And that's why he's worth your passionate faithfulness. He loves you first. He loves you always. Beloved, you're loved. You're loved. Now, because you're loved, what should you run from? Your own idolatry. The tense of this word means always running. You don't go, I ran from idolatry once and now I'm done. Every day until you're dead, you run from it. Any emotional devotion to something that would be more ultimate or significant to you than Jesus, you better run. Any intellectual devotion, mental devotion to anything more ultimate or significant to you than Jesus, you run. How do you run? That's different in every in every in, um, instant. But you run. You don't play. You don't stay. You don't linger. You don't flirt. You run. I used to work the drive through at a McDonald's in high school. And uh, it was a new McDonald's. And all these boxes were stuffed back in the drive through And uh, I had this amazing flowing curly hair. Some of you remember it, right? Um... And this girl in the back started hitting on me big time. And praise be the Lord, he was with me. And for whatever reason, I was not interested. The reason I tell you this story is because all these boxes, you had to like climb over stuff to get back to the drive-thru. So I opened the drive-thru window and I climbed out to get away from this person. <laughs> so it's kind of funny when the car's coming around and the McDonald's worker is climbing out of the window and going around to the front. Okay. It can be awkward sometimes. I was running. You got to flee from your idolatry. You got to climb out the window. What was it like for Joseph? You remember the story of Joseph? He's good looking. Um, he, I'm not saying I'm as good looking as Joseph was. Maybe I am. I, I'm not saying that. He was good looking and Potiphar's wife says, come on boy, right? Lie with me. She grabs his coat. What do you do? The owner doesn't pay attention to anything. He doesn't care. Um, if he cares about his career, maybe he should. What's he do? He runs. Uh, and he says something like, I'm not sinning against God, and I'm, I'm not sinning against your husband by doing this. And he runs. Was there a cost to pay for that? Yeah. Was it the right decision? Yeah. Was he living a life of passionate faithfulness to his God? Flee from idolatry. Run. And it's run from your own idolatry. This is your mind, your heart, your life. And when you see things pulling you to passionate faithfulness that should only belong to Jesus, run. Run away from idolatry. And Paul says, think about it. And he uses, you know, the issue for the Corinthians was a feast of worship, right? They're sacrificing livestock in worship to their gods. And so... For their context, this is the perfect illustration for him to bring up. What does he say in verse 15? Judge for yourself. I speak as the sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. And so he's going to compare and contrast two feasts, right? You could probably predict what is the Christian feast he's going to bring up. 
It's not the monthly potluck at Fulf. That's the second one, okay? The primary Christian feast is the Lord's Supper. And think about it. How many times have we eaten this together? It's beautiful. A couple of weeks ago, we had a beautiful time eating this together. And look what Paul says in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless. And it's the, this is the Lord bless the cup, right? This is my blood shed for you. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a, and do you see what word is there? Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So you're interacting, you're doing it, you're connected to Christ and his death. And this, this word here actually that the ESV is giving you is participation. This is where we get the idea of communion. To commune, it's like an intimate sharing, right? You're sharing with Jesus. Have you ever thought of this? What is the person of Jesus? What has he shared with you? And to what extent has he shared it? You know, we, we can share on distant levels. Oh, sure, I'll do this for you. I'll help you here. But what did, what did Jesus share with you? He's totally, like he came to share our flesh, to walk in our shoes. And he's, he shared with us to the extent of where he trades our life for his. He shared your sins in the sense that he gave them to me. And he pays for them. His blood was shed. And he shares with you his righteousness. What I've done, I'm going to give it to you. And throughout the New Testament, we see we are in Christ. We're united to Christ. He has shared his very self with us. We're his body. We're his bride. We're his people. This, is the be- this may be the best idea, belief, doctrine in the world, that you're united to Jesus. I am yours and you are mine. You can say that to him through faith in what he's done for you. And when you drink this cup, you share intimately. His death for me won me. I belong to him. His death bought my forgiveness. His death is my death to idolatry. Jesus, you're the only one for me. When you drink that, that's what you're sharing in. And we share in his body. His body was broken. His life for my life makes me right with God. His work for me earns my adoption before the Father. His life gives me new life in him. And his life puts us together. Now we are the body. Together we share him. I don't just, it's not just me and Jesus, right? In a corner. It's us and Jesus. We share him together. We have fellowship with him and his son and, his one, and with one another. We're in the body together. And we participate. We commune. We acted this out. We're connected. This is real for us. This is our lives. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is our feast. You've connected with Jesus. And then he brings up the priest from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This worship communes and connects people with God. So now look at verse 19. Well, what do I imply then? Food offered to idols or anything or that an idol is anything? So is is Paul afraid that Zeus is going to overtake God, the creator God? Is, Is Paul superstitious? Oh, the bad guy priest touched your steak, and now you're going to get sick. Is that what it is? Is it about the meat itself? Is it about we're afraid of this God? Well, of course not. Of course not. Is it the food that's a big deal itself? No, verse 19. Is it the idol that's a big deal itself? Are we scared of any other God? Like, oh, is it it's God for this other God? We're not sure who's going to win. No, they're not gods. There's one God. But, verse 20, 
You ready for this? I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to... See it in the language yourself. To what? Demons. I don't want you to be a participator, a communer, an intimate sharer with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Now they are, right? They're drinking both cups. But it's like Jesus says, you can't have two masters. One you'll love, the other one you'll hate. In the end, one will really actually be your master. He is saying, you pick a team. Which cup are you drinking? Now, demons. I always feel, it always feels like crazy talk a little, right? When we bring up demons. Um, it's easy to over-spiritualize things. You know, the person driving through the parking lot, like, I claim a parking spot for me in Jesus' name, you know. <laughs> I curse the evil one. Um, you could over-spiritualize or, you know, you wake up sad one morning and you're like, the devil is oppressing me. I don't want to, I don't know. I don't want to over, I don't want to throw that around lightly. And yet, what is Paul saying here? There's something that's inspiring the idolatry of the world. Okay? And it reminds us that as Christians, we believe in a spiritual reality. And to me, as I look at the world, it's not hard to believe that there is a spiritual force that is evil, deeply evil. You look at some of the things in the world and you're like, really? Evil. They love evil, the Bible tells us. They love destruction. They want to ruin you. And because they want to ruin you, what will they inspire? Idolatry. What's the best way to ruin you? Well, it's easy, isn't it? If God is the only one who can satisfy you forever, and they don't want you satisfied forever, where do they want your hope? They don't really care as long as it's not God. They don't really care. It could be wealth, material, riches, sexuality, another religion, anything. Any, as long as it's not God. Idolatry. If Jesus is the only one who can save you, then what do they want you trusting in? Your own goodness. Anything other than Jesus. If passionate faithfulness is the life of faith, then what do they want you to be? Casually flirtatious. Casually flirtatious with idols. And Paul says, if you participate in those ceremonies, you're communing with the enemy. Your life is saying, I belong to something other than Jesus. That's hard to know in our culture where that line is, isn't it? For them, it was really clear. Here is a worship festival to Zeus. <laughs> we don't have, I don't have that in my experience. I don't know about you. It's hard to find our, our lines. Where has something become more than just a good thing... And now it's become an idle thing. And you need to flee it. Something we should think about for, for, for our own lives, for our own experiences. But look at verse 22. This is an amazing question. Two questions. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? When you flirt with idolatry, and really the heart of this is, something is more ultimate to me than Jesus in some way. 
when you flirt with this, when you're moving that way, it's possible to provoke the Lord to what? Jealousy. Do you know our God is a jealous God? He's not embarrassed of that. Says it about himself several times. Now, jealousy, right, uh, most of the time is a bad thing. You want, it's kind of like covetousness when we use it that way. You want things you shouldn't have. But there's a time, right, when jealousy is totally appropriate. Someone's flirting with your spouse. How should you feel? If you're like, oh, I don't care. The rest of us are like, something's wrong with you. How should you feel? Jealous. Why? Because you have... You have a connection with that person and a covenant with that person. There are certain things from that person that should only belong to you, namely flirting being one. That's mine. It's rightfully mine. And my flirting is hers and only hers. We're in covenant. And so if there's anything outside of that, it should be jealousy. And two things. One, Paul is bringing this up to make you a little bit afraid. And if you imagine your spouse coming up to you and being like, honey, let's have an open relationship I'm bringing in a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And your spouse would be like, no, you are not. And their feelings would be rage. Let's not go to Jesus and be like, hey, Jesus, um, I'm kind of interested in a religion where I can worship you and some other stuff. So can I do, you know, I'll give you Jesus time, but then other aspects of my life, I'd like to kind of, Flirt with some other gods on that. What's Jesus' response? No. And then Paul actually says, are we stronger than he? You want a wrestling match with Jesus? Jesus, I'd like to change the uh, nature of our relationship. I want it to be an open relationship. Paul's like, are you ready for that? You want to make Jesus angry in this way? I mean, earlier in the chapter, we saw God decimate the Israelites in the wilderness for their idolatry. Do you want to go there? And of course, it's rhetorical, right? What should our hearts be? Do you want to commune with Jesus and demons? Do you want to play? Do you want to flirt? And of course, for everyone who is beloved, right? Our hearts are like, no, I don't want that. I want to be passionately faithful to Jesus. Run from idolatry because... Because we're in covenant with Jesus and we don't want to flirt with the enemy. Run. Run from idolatry. Two, run into love for your neighbor. Look at verse 23. Paul's quoting them. See the quotes in Corinthians. It's good to remember that they had written a letter to him and many times he's quoting what they said or what they believed. And so when he says in verse 23, all things are lawful, He's quoting what they've said. And they're basically saying, hey, look, we have a new freedom in Christ. Um, We have the Holy Spirit. And so they were taking that to mean inappropriately, we can do what we want. And so Paul responds to this again. He's mentioned it at several times in the letter. But in verse 23, he says, all things are lawful. Okay, but what? But not all things are helpful. Do you see a huge difference? Oh, it's legal. Okay. Helpful. Is it good for people? Very different. Oh, I can do what I want. I'm free. Okay, it's all about you. Helpful. It's about others. 
All things are lawful, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things, what? Build up. We have so much freedom in Christ. We're not under the law. We have freedom in scads and masses of amazing ways. But our freedom is not meant for us to be all about ourselves. A Christian ethic is here. What should be our goal for one another, for others? I'm helping them. I want to build you up. I want to build you up. And if the Christian life is passionate faithfulness to Jesus, how do we build up one another? Towards passionate faithfulness to Jesus. Christian freedom is aimed at love for your neighbor. So it's not just run away, right? Run away from idolatry. He didn't mean run from the city, run from the culture, go hide in your little Christian enclave. It's not what he means at all. Run from your own heart's lack of faithfulness. Run to Jesus. And then as we do that, now we're running into pursuing, engaging love for our neighbors. Let's build up one another. Let's seek the good of our neighbors. And he has two different kinds of people in mind in these three chapters, believers and unbelievers. And so when it comes to loving our neighbor in the context of idolatry, don't you remember some of the Corinthians were kind of being like, oh, it's okay to eat Zeus steak together. And that was really wrecking other Christians. Maybe they'd spent their whole lives worshiping Zeus and now they're finally breaking free. And to them, part of that worship was eating that meat. And when they see other people who love Jesus eating that meat, they're like, are we doing both here? So, so the strong group who understood, oh, we can eat the meat, they're wrecking the faith of their brothers and sisters. They're influencing other brothers and sisters towards idolatry. Paul says this cannot be. So how do we love one another in the context of an idol-saturated world? We walk with one another. We push one another towards passionate faithfulness to Jesus. And then Paul talks about unbelievers. He says, I give up my rights. I'll do anything. You see it in chapter 9. I'll do anything so that by all means I might save some. So if I'm, if when, I'm, when I'm with Jews, I'll be like Jews in this cultural setting. I'll do everything I can to get rid of every obstacle so I can share the gospel with them. When I'm with Gentiles, I don't need to bring all my, my Jewish cultural things in there. I'm going to be with them. I want to have common ground with them so that by all means I can share with them the gospel. I'll do anything to bring them the gospel. Love for your neighbor. Love for believers. Lo- love for unbelievers. Look, you'll, you'll see it. Look at verse 25. You're free, right? You're free to eat the meat. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? You can eat. God made the cow. In the name of Jesus, amen. Look at verse 27. If unbelievers have you over, what should you do? Well, first you have so much freedom already and you're disposed to go. He doesn't say you have to go if you want to go. But is there any idea of like, run away from unbelievers, don't talk to them. They're idolaters. Is that in this text at all? No, 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 no. Go to their house. He's assuming that people who aren't Christians will have us over for dinner. When was the last time that happened to you? And when they do, you should go, I guess, if you want. Go and go and eat. Verse 30, if I partake with faithfulness, why am I denounced for because of that for which I give thanks? So he's saying, I'm free to do everything for the glory of God, and nobody can call me into question based on what I'm eating necessarily for its own sake. It, it reminds me of 1 Timothy 4, 
chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. Paul writes there, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So everything is what? Good. You don't have to reject it. If it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. So the word of God shows us what we're supposed to do with this. That's how we know how to do all things for his glory. So you're free. You're free to eat. But you're also ready. So imagine you're a Corinthian and you've been invited by an idol-worshipping family over for dinner. And you're like, we're going. I'm so excited. I like these people. Maybe we can talk about Jesus with them. And they serve you some meat. Eat it up. How do you like it? Medium. Eat it up. Enjoy it. If they say... We cut this up for Zeus. We love Zeus. And we eat this meat in worship to Zeus. Now what are you going to do? What's going through your head? I know what it is. Well, I don't want to push them away. Right? I don't want to push them away. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And they just said, join me as I worship Zeus. For the Corinthians, Paul said, this is a line that cannot be crossed. Look at verse 28. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then what? Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Why? For the sake of the one who informed you. It's not about whether or not the cow has actually killed the Zeus and is it, you know, is it dirty Zeus meat now. It's about love for your neighbor. And there's somebody else in that room. And to him, when he eats this meat, he's worshiping Zeus. And if you eat the meat, in his mind, he's thinking, you are worshiping Zeus with me. And you hear Jesus' words, I always obey the Father so that the world will know that I love the Father. You eat that meat, that man thinks you love Zeus. And if you love him, you'll make sure he knows you love Jesus. There's a line you can't cross. That line will have a social cost, maybe. You didn't eat my meat? For the Corinthians, it had a business cost. If you would eat some festivals, you can't be in the, in, the, in the business group. It'll have a cost. It had a cost for Joseph to run away. But it's love. So your job and my job is to know where that line is. We're loving people. We can be involved in a host of things. But when your heart tells you this has moved from casual sharing of life to an explicit worship of something else, you need to be explicit, Paul is saying, about who you're for. And what an opportunity! What an opportunity! You think Paul envisions that you going to the, the person's house and they're like, this is meat sacrificed to Zeus. Let's praise Zeus together. Do you think you're supposed to be like, you dirty, stupid, rotten pagan. Don't you know Zeus is terrible? Burn in hell forever. Is that what he envisions? No. What if it was something like this? I am so thankful you invited me. 
And this meat looks so good. And I respect my friendship with you so much. So I hate to even have to say this for this reason. But you have to know, I've met somebody who's changed my life. Jesus has changed my life. And you, then you say, and he's so different from all these other gods. You know, don't you see how these gods make you do stuff, do stuff, do stuff, do stuff, so that they won't be angry at you? And we're like slaves to them? Jesus came and did it for me. He's forgiven me of my sins. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's changed me. I'm different. And I love him so much. I just can't. I cannot eat and worship to someone else. He's too precious to me. I'm, I hope you're not offended. But that's what I have to do. Because he's so beautiful to me. And I love him. Who did you just glorify? You made it explicit. I saw the echo. I heard the echo of Jesus saying, I always obey the Father so the world will know I love the Father. And you hear, this is what Paul's saying, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You want Jesus to be seen, to be heard. And this is what he means by run into love. Run in to love. When in the context of idolatry with other believers, we want to build one another up for passionate faithfulness to Jesus. And in the context of an idolatrous world, when we're with unbelievers, we want it to be seen when that line is coming, who we love. And we're not afraid to do so. Run away from idolatry. Run into love for neighbor. Run for the glory of God. Look at verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all. Do it all for the glory of God. Is God glorious to you? Is he beautiful to you? The, greater, the more glory he has to you, the more you'll be drawn into this. If you're in that dark place where God looks unimpressive, the other idols look better. But the way it works for the Christian is this. The more we see his glory... By his spirit, in his word, together. The more we see his glory, the more we, we love him, we're impressed with him, we want to be like him. And then we want him to be seen in us in whatever we do. As we see him and become more like him, the world should, be, the world should see flashes of him as they see us, right? Enjoy him and show him. And this is love. Everything for his glory. Everything that he would be seen to be your first love. So the point is this. In a world saturated with idols, run to and run for the Lord Jesus with passionate faithfulness. You're going to be running away from idolatry. You're going to be running into love for your neighbor. You're going to be running for the glory of God. And the reason we can run like this, right? Who ran first? Who ran first? Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2. Looking to... To who? Do you remember? To Jesus. He, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and it is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus run that race to the cross? 
for the joy set before him. How, what, do you, what do you envision that joy being? What made Jesus so happy? Well, part one, we've seen it, right? He wanted to glorify his father. I love my father so much. Look, world, I'll go to the cross for him. But there's another love that fits right in there. There's another love. He's doing something for the glory of God. Let it hit home. He ran for you. He ran the race for you. He ran the race to be able to commune with you so that you could commune with him. He ran to have you. Was his running for you a casual flirtation? Or was he all in every moment for you? We saw it last week, right? He loved his own to the end. He ran for you to the cross. He lived a life of passionate faithfulness in your place for you. You know, for all of, I told you, I'm a, I'm a recovering idolater. I'm so glad Jesus has paid for all my idolatry. Aren't you? I haven't run faithfully. He has. He died to pay for our idolatry. And he rose so that we could rise to new life of passionate faithfulness to him. Not perfection. Right? Don't hear me saying God will love you if you'll live a life of passionate faithfulness. Nobody in here has done that well enough. But God has so loved you and lived a life of passionate faithfulness for you in Christ that he can start changing you to where you, you, you start feeling what Jesus felt of. I want to live a certain way so the world will know I love the Father. Run for him. Run like him. Away from idolatry into love for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we want all this to happen in us. I wanted it to happen in me. As we sit here right now, make it happen in me. Show us. Will you guys pray this with me? Lord, show me my idolatry. Show me where I'm flirting. Show me where I'm too close with the enemy. And let me run from it and run into you, the one who's run for me. And Lord, in this idle, saturated world, let me run in such a way that every, every one of us here, that we would live in such a way where people would say, that person loves Jesus. Lord, show us when the line is getting crossed and we need to stand and be explicit and say, I live for Jesus. And give us the boldness and the strength and the peace and the joy to do so. And we pray that we would do it uh, for your glory. That in everything through us, people would see your beauty expressed in who we are. And, we, and, thank, and just lastly, we thank you so much that even when we don't do this, you love us, you forgive us, we're your beloved. You ran first. We run because of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.